Well, good afternoon. It is uh, great to see you on this weekend. And I uh, just would encourage you. Boy, didn't those desserts look great? Yeah, I'm hungry. Um, encourage you to pick up uh, tickets from the Resource Center or, or online. Uh, the uh, Christmas outreach presentations will be a great opportunity for the story of Jesus' birth, his coming, uh, the story of his death and resurrection, and all that that means for us. That story will be told in song and through spoken words. So a great way to share the story of Christmas with some of your friends and family. Pick up your tickets after the service. We are in uh, <clears throat> this series, E-Transfer, and today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, uh, about the last days, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's an oft-repeated verse. The love of many will grow cold. And it seems that we live in an age when love is growing cold around the world. If you look at what's happening on the streets of different countries, uh, cities, for example, if you look at Latin America, in Colombia, in Venezuela, in Chile, in Bolivia, there are people protesting right now. Uh, Pastor Willie mentioned Iran, massive protests, a lot of suffering, Iraq, Gaza, Lebanon, Hong Kong, and we could go on. It appears that love has grown cold. If you look at the political situation just south of the border here, uh, you see parties, uh, people speaking past each other. It seems as if they can't even hear what the other is saying. Here in Canada, with the recent election process, it was fascinating to me how, how the Political debates were just riddled with personal attacks, with very little um, room given to reasonable explanation of party platforms. If you wanted to know what a politician actually stood for, you had to do your own research. When they were on TV or in a debate, they were just attacking one another. So it appears that love has grown cold. At the same time, you know, there's this mantra which people repeat quite often, love, peace, and justice for all. And those three words, love, peace, and justice, it appears that they lack definition. In our age, it appears that what that means is, well, just love me, be at peace with me, accept me as I am, don't infringe on me, please secure justice for me. We live in a very selfish time. We live individualism to the extreme. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he spoke of the last days that people would be lovers of self. One example of that in our day is that um, in 2018, Google users, they uploaded to the Google Photos app uh, 24 billion selfies. 24 billion selfies. Every day. On Instagram, 95 million selfies are posted. So, in a year, that's about 34 billion selfies just on Instagram. That doesn't include Twitter and Snapchat and what's on iCloud. And seeing I'm talking of selfies, maybe I should just take one, actually. (laughs) There we go. Let's see here. Okay, smile and wave. You didn't wave. 
But I look great. I'm going to put that on Instagram. (laughs) So much attention given to self-love. Do we even understand what it means to love? And that's why we go back to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most beautiful texts in all of Scripture, and I think the most beautiful text in all of literature when it comes to, to love. To understand this chapter, I think we need to understand what Paul is arguing in, the, in his first letter to the Corinthians. So in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about a divisive spirit that resides in the church. People are identifying with different leaders. And Paul says that if you want to have an allegiance that's actually going to sustain a human life or a church family, you need to have a strong allegiance with one person only, Jesus. Then in chapters 5 through 7, he addresses an immoral spirit that pervades the life of the church. And he reminds the disciples of Jesus in Corinth that they've been bought by the blood of Christ, that they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if they're going to have a union that will give them life, that union should be Jesus. And then in chapters 8 through 10, he addresses a, a these are my right spirit. People were in Corinth, they were thinking about themselves a lot. And Paul says, my goal in life is to know Jesus and to lead others to know the Jesus that loves them. And if you want to have a goal in life, make this your goal, to be like Jesus. That's the goal that will fill your life with meaning. And at the end of chapter uh, 10, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am, Christ, as I am of Christ. In other words, in as much as I reflect the image of Jesus, follow me. And of course, the invitation there is for us to not only follow Paul's example, but to truly follow Jesus. Then we get into chapters 11 through 14, and it's interesting to see the way that these um, chapters are structured because the structure itself tells us what's most important in these chapters. Paul uses what's called a chiastic structure, and so he starts talking about how we should conduct ourselves when we gather as a church family. He addresses the Lord's Supper or things that are going wrong. And then he talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he addresses what is most important. And then in chapter 14, he addresses uh, spiritual gifts again. And he ends chapter 14 talking about how we should conduct ourselves in worship services. So what is most important is at the heart of these four chapters. And that is chapter 13. Imagine for a minute a... um, a church where there is a divisive spirit, where people are aligning themselves with different leaders, where there is a spirit of rivalry and one-upmanship. Just imagine the practice of spiritual gifts in that kind of atmosphere. How much competition there would be. People would be fighting for the most prominent gift. Just imagine a church where there's an immoral spirit, So people are practicing the gift of teaching or prophesying or speaking in tongues, but their life does not reflect the character of Jesus. So there'd be this confusion, right? Spiritual gifts being practiced, we're hearing good things, but the lifestyle of the people, it doesn't match up. Or imagine a church where there's a these are my my right spirit uh, pervading church life. 
And so everybody's thinking about their own interests. Spiritual gifts are being practiced, but in a very selfish way. It would be confusing, right? What is most needed to be a healthy church family? Is it a prophetic gift? Is it a charismatic leader? Is it more education? Is it more knowledge? Is it a perfect governance structure, a perfect constitution? What is most needed in the life of the church? Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's go to it. If you grab your Bible or the Bible from the pew in front of you, it's page 959. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And as we read those verses, we might say, wait a minute, our culture doesn't believe this. The question is, do we? Uh, Verse 1, Paul says, okay, if I'm very sophisticated spiritually, and I do speak in the tongues of men, uh, human languages, as Pastor James showed us last week, what happens in Acts chapter 2, or if I speak in the tongues of angels, what's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if I do that, but have not love, I am nothing. Just a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, a hollow, echoing, groaning gong. Paul's referring to the noises that were common in the pagan cults in Corinth. And so he's saying, if you speak in spiritual language, speak in tongues, spiritual gifts are evident in your life, but you have not love. You're living like a pagan. You may draw attention, but you're empty. You're just noise. And then he goes to verse 2. You may appear to be very spiritual. You may have a prophetic gift to speak forth the word of God. You may know all the mysteries, hidden things, words of knowledge, words of revelation. You may have faith to move mountains. That's a proverbial expression to just believe that the impossible can happen. You have faith that the mighty works of God will happen in your day. But even if you have all of that, if you do not have love, it is nothing. An absolute zero. Verse 3, you may demonstrate unparalleled dedication. You may give all that you have to the poor. Uh, excessive philanthropy. You may give your life uh, as a self-sacrifice. You may die as a martyr. Do all of that. But if you don't have love, it is of no value. It's of no eternal benefit. And we might read that and think, well, really, Paul? Are you serious? Of course, as disciples of Jesus, we would say, well, yes, it is the word of God. But do our values, our life choices, reflect a confident belief in what Paul writes in these verses? 
You see, two opposing views of spirituality are being contrasted here. On the one hand, you have an appearance of spirituality. You have spiritual language. You have spiritual gifts. But it's all very self-oriented, very selfish. And on the other hand, you have a love that is truly self-giving. Let me apply it to myself. If I preach here weekend after weekend, dispensing biblical knowledge... And during the prayer times, you come forward for prayer, and I pray for your healing. And then I go to another land, and I serve as a missionary. And maybe I even die as a martyr. If I do all of that but have not love, it is of no value. Zero. Do we believe that? That whatever we do must be done out of love for God and love for the other. Why? Because love is essential. Love is essential. From God's perspective, love is essential. Well, if that is true, what is love? And Paul describes love for us in a beautiful way. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So much is contained in these verses. We need to slow down and ponder. He contrasts a passive stance with an active stance. So the passive is patience. Love is patient. Love doesn't give up. Love perseveres in relationships. Love is not given to immediate passionate outbursts. Literally, it doesn't have a short fuse. Did any of you have an outburst this last week? I did. I think it was Tuesday. Love is kind. It's gracious. It's it's gentle. It has this inclination to serve others even when it's treated Badly. You see, love thinks of the other with grace and has this desire to serve. Earlier this week, I learned of a certain circumstance, and when I learned <clears throat> what was happening, I, was, I could see, just feel the anger welling up within me. I, I, I had this judgmental spirit. I was judging the people involved. And then I read Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 describes God. And it says that God is loving. He's steadfast in his love. That he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. That he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I just thought, wow, I fall so far short. Love is patient, it's kind. And then Paul talks about what love is not. Love does not envy. It doesn't burn with jealousy. It's not given to a spirit of rivalry, what was present in the church in Corinth. It doesn't desire to possess what the other has. It's not unhappy when another person has been blessed. 
Have you ever felt that? Had that thought? Why is that person being blessed? I should be. You desire what the other has received. Love doesn't boast. It's not a windbag. It doesn't brag. It doesn't call attention to itself. Love is not arrogant. Literally what it means is it doesn't fill itself up with air. Where Judy grew up in southern Brazil, they have this wonderful gesture. When a person is talking too much, you know, just full of hot air, boasting, they put the finger to the neck and they go... Of course, you do that. You see, the person's talking and there's, their people are gathered and you kind of find your way behind the person and you look at everybody else in the circle and you just go, you're going to do that this week. It's very useful. <laughs> Love is not arrogant. It's not full of itself. Love isn't consumed with its own importance, its own well-being. Love is not rude. It doesn't mistreat people. It doesn't run over people. It's not vulgar. It's not indecent. It's tactful. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't fight for its own rights. Remember what Paul was saying about rights in chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians. Our age is so much about us demanding getting our own rights, our own way. So much about defining ourselves, us just being ourselves, demanding that others accept us as we are fighting for our own rights. And that fight, which is so strong today, reveals that we do not understand in our day what it means to be loved and what it means to love. Paul goes on that love is not irritable, it's not easily angered, it's not easily offended. It's not hypersensitive. And again, that describes our day. We are so hypersensitive in our culture. And if we are so hypersensitive, I think what it reveals is that we don't understand what it means to truly be loved by God, to be loved by God as we are, to be accepted by him, and then having known that love to love the other. And not spend all of this time trying to get others to accept us as we are. Love is not resentful. Another translation is keeps no record of wrongdoing, right? You and I, we don't keep any record of wrongdoing, right? We've never... I find that that happens automatically. I don't even have to think about it. Sometimes I have this playlist of grievances on replay in my mind. And when I notice that, I need to humble myself before God and ask for forgiveness. Often those records of wrongs, they're kept with those closest to us. It's a spouse, it's a child, it's a brother, it's a sister, it's another member of the church. This record of wrongs, love does not keep a record of wrongs. You don't have this emotional bank account where everybody is owing you. There's a movie uh, called The Count of Monte Cristo. And um, so the, the main character is Edmond Dantes. And uh, he's, uh, I believe, in Marseille. And he is unjustly accused of treason. And so without trial, he's placed in a prison on an island off the coast of Marseille. 
And there in prison, another inmate rightly deduces that he has been imprisoned unjustly and it's the work of his enemies who have turned him in. So Edmund Dantes, eventually he escapes from prison and uh, he finds a treasure. One day he comes back to France, he goes to Paris. Now he's wealthy, now he's the Count of Monte Cristo. But what consumes him is his desire for revenge. He wants to avenge himself of all of his enemies. It's what consumes him, what defines him. And at the end of the movie, all he has is anger. And that, of course, is the opposite of what Paul is describing here. It is the opposite of the way of Jesus. Paul goes on, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It finds no joy in the wrongdoing of someone else, the fall of someone else, the mistake of someone else. Have you ever felt that? You know, someone that has treated you badly and then they slip up. Just a little bit of joy. (laughs) Boy, nice to see them fall down. Love does not take joy in the fall of another the wrongdoing of another. No, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices when the gospel wins, when people come to an understanding of God's love and his kindness and his grace. Then it celebrates. So love, it has this commitment with God and his agenda, not with a personal agenda. And then if that is not enough, Paul says in verse 7, love bears all things. That word literally means that it holds up the roof of the house. It doesn't give up. It perseveres in relationship. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It believes all things because it has a confident trust in the faithfulness of God. It hopes all things because its hope is in God, the God who is faithful, who is good, who is all-powerful, who can intervene. It endures all things because it trusts in God to see the person through. So this love that's described here, it is excellent. It is the most excellent way. And it is beyond anything that we can comprehend, actually. It's beautiful. It hopes for the miracle. It hopes for the cure. It hopes for the intervention, the transformation. And the question you would ask, or at least I would ask, is, well, does it then tolerate everything? No, there are moments when the truth, sorry, love must speak the truth in love. There are moments when love must set up boundaries. There are moments when discipline needs to happen, but love never gives up. I find that I can discern or become more aware of whether I have this love or not when someone wrongs me, when someone offends me, when I think that someone is treating me unjustly. Then by my reaction, I can measure the thermometer of my love. If you read these verses, it's quite easy to replace love with Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus keeps no record of wrong. We could go on and on. But then put your own name in the text. You know, if I put my name, put your name. Ray is patient and kind. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Maybe now and then, by God's grace, but boy, not every day. 
Ray does not envy or boast. I wish I didn't. Love is not, Ray, Ray is not arrogant or, or rude. Ray does not insist on his own way. Ray is not irritable, irritable or resentful. Ray does not rejoice at wrongdoing, Ray does not reju- but Ray rejoices with the truth. Ray bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Boy, I wish that was the description of me. Well, there's only one that lives that fully. That's Jesus, right? He's the one who loves perfectly. But it is what we are called to. And so the question is, well, how could we ever love in that way, right? We'll come back to that. This love is excellent. None of us measure up. Paul goes on, verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What is Paul saying when he says that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away? There are some who read this text and say that these speaking gifts, they ceased, they passed away with the death of the last apostle and the completion of the New Testament. These gifts were no longer necessary. And in the list, they would often include miraculous gifts, healings. This view, it's called uh, cessationism. In summary, with the death of the last apostle, with the completion of the New Testament, knowledge, tongues, uh, and prophecy no longer needed. I think the context, if we read this verse in the context, another interpretation would become more clear. When the perfect comes, when does that happen? When the perfect comes refers to when we will see Jesus face to face in verse 12. Face to face, that's an Old Testament expression for a personal encounter with God, and so we will see Jesus face to face when he returns. When Jesus returns, we will know him fully as we are fully known, Paul says. And so no longer will there be a need for spiritual gifts that enable us to see him in part, to know him in part, to understand him in part, to minister in his name in part. No, the perfect will come and all of these lesser gifts will pass away. Paul says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. In Corinth, Corinth was famous for its mirrors, mirrors made of polished metal, often bronze. And so you would look at that polished metal and you would see an indistinct image, a very bad selfie. We all see in part. We all see dimly. We're limited in what we see. There's a Chinese proverb that says that two-thirds of what we see is behind our eyes. Two-thirds of what we see. In other words, we're not seeing perfectly. We're interpreting. And we see quite often what we already have within us. Here's an example of that. 
if you go to an art gallery, I find this fascinating. Sometimes I'll be looking at a painting, and um, I kind of understand the painting a bit. And then an art historian comes to explain what the painting is about. And the art historian explains the context of the painting, uh, what was happening at that time, the philosophy of the time, the thinking of the painter. And all of a sudden I start to see so much more. The day will come when spiritual gifts will be put aside, when we will see more clearly Paul makes this analogy. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But now that I am an adult, I put childish things aside. In this age, we see dimly. We do not see perfectly. But the day is coming when Jesus will return and the Son of God will shine brightly. We will see him face to face and all of the lesser lights pointing to him will fade away. Hallelujah. But while we are here on earth awaiting the coming of Christ, all spiritual gifts remain. They are the gift of God to the church or the gifts of God to the church. That's the plain reading of the text and the context supports us. And then verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. While we live on earth, faith is necessary. Faith in God, because we can trust him. While we live on earth, we hope. We hope for the return of Christ. Our hope is rooted in God, and he is faithful. He is good. When Jesus returns, faith and hope will no longer be necessary. They will pass away, but love will remain. Love will remain because love is eternal, because God is love, and we will be with him and his people forever. Hallelujah. Love is essential. Love is excellent. Love is eternal. And as we read through the text, I think we all come to the conclusion that we fall short, that we do not love as Jesus has loved us. We do not Love in every moment as the Lord would have us love. And that's why we need to look to Jesus. That's why we come around the Lord's table to remember what God has done for us. Because when we remember what God has done for us, we are humbled, yes, and we confess and we repent, but at the same time, we're filled with gratitude and we're filled with hope because by the grace of God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been saved. We have become children of God. The way into the presence of the Father has been opened and Father and Son have sent the Holy Spirit to abide in us and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us enables us to love to produce the fruit of love. And as we follow Jesus, we grow in love for him and for our brothers and sisters and for the people around us. That happens by God's grace. And so as we come to the table today, let's remember God's immeasurable goodness and grace. Amen? Amen. Let's transition to the Lord's table.